0: So, this week we watched The King's Speech. You know what's interesting is so many historical films are on like British history and British yeah. royals. I feel like this is maybe our first focus on that.
1: Yeah, I guess Titanic was like Titanic partially British classism,
0: but. But this yeah. week we're talking about kings. Yeah. So. Speaking of classism, let's talk about the top here. Yeah.
1: Is it history? Is it fiction? Is it somewhere in between?
0: What's the real story behind the movie you think you know? This is Real Fiction.
1: Anyone who's seen this film or knows anything about the monarchy knows. Monarchs had their given names and then their royal names. Um, So to Mm -hmm. avoid confusion, we're going to establish what we're going to call the main character, we're going to refer to him as Bertie. Um, when we refer to him, before he becomes king, he's Prince Albert, and after he become ki- becomes king, he's King George VI. Um, we will try to keep that straight for y'all. <laughs> um, <laughs> and us too. Yeah, and us too. <laughs> so Prince Albert developed a stammer at around um, seven or eight. From a young age, he did have to deal with a lot of things that kind of um, affected his confidence, so again, as he says in the film, he was naturally left-handed, and and he was made to write right-handed, he was knock-kneed so he was made to wear splints, and he was just generally much shyer than his brother, Prince Edward. So this, um, in addition to his stutter, kind of shot his confidence from young age, and we see that in the film. Um, in the 1910s, uh, Prince Albert um, began his education for his naval career, and he became friends with some naval cadets, and actually at that time, um, his stutter went away when he was with his friends. Not necessarily when he was in class. Um, it's interesting and kind of goes to show what the film is all about, about like, how it's tied to him not believing that he can speak without it. But when he's comfortable mm-hmm. and he's with his friends, he's fine. The first time his stutter was broadcast to the country was in 1925, um, at a speech at the closing of the British Empire Exhibition. And from that point on, people would have known that he had a speech impediment. The
0: BBC National Program and Empire Service, taking you to Wembley Stadium for the closing ceremony of the Empire Exhibition.
1: Where His Royal Highness, the Duke of York, will give his
0: inaugural broadcast to the nation and the world.
1: So a number of people, including the screenwriter on the film, actually have written about what it was like to hear the King stutter growing up um, with a the stutter themselves and like what that meant to them. And then the last thing I'll say about this is that, um, according to his biography in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, George VI, um, as king, was actually really highly respected for his struggles with his
0: stutter and how he overcame it. It's interesting to like to hear that background because, as I mean, as someone who was born well after these events, um, obviously I don't have that experience, but I also just wasn't aware of it until this movie came out actually I had no idea yeah I don't actually think I knew what the movie was about when I went to go see it and it's interesting that this is all happening obviously at the start of the development of radio so around this time in like the early half of the 20th century um, about the 1920s through the 50s say um, was the golden age of radio and this is where radio developed from something that was just a tool used on like the warfront or used as just like a piece of machinery to something that was actually broadcast to the public. Um, so radio had first been revolutionary in wartime with news of the warfront. It also became a tool for leaders to connect with their people. So King George VI was not the first person or first leader to be using the radio this way. We also have, obviously, President Roosevelt and his fireside chats. Uh, there are a number of other European countries that decided early on that radio was going to be a tool for this. Um, oh. So a lot of political leaders would uh, would see the use in it. And so there were a lot of government-established stations. In the UK, the birth of radio started around 19- in 1922. At the time, you actually needed a license just to listen to it, which already cost 10 shillings. So it wasn't like a widespread thing just quite yet um the bbc began as privately owned but the government wasn't happy with what the local stations were doing and they ended up replacing it with their own public bbc in 1927 that's what we have today biggest or most important speech that the royals have to be involved with is obviously the christmas day speech that's something that keeps coming back to us in the movie we see his father working on it earlier in the movie all to each i wish a happy christmas god bless you and offer. Easy when you know how. Um, and then later on, I don't think they address it specifically, but they have a Christmas speech that has to get skipped because his brother abdicates the throne. So it's like sort of a, a reminder throughout the movie of, of his duties that he has to prepare for. So the Christmas Day speech was actually the idea of John Reith, who was the founding father um, of the BBC, essentially he approached King George V who is um, his father in the film but the king actually dismissed the idea at first he thought that the radio was mainly for entertainment sort of saw himself above that medium this changes in the 1930s so in 1932 the BBC launches the Empire Service and to like mark the moment then King George V agreed to do the podcast and I think that's <laughs> significant because it's definitely like oh he now he wants to be present as like the figure at the head of an empire yeah He also, this is the year where he agreed to do the Christmas Day speech. Um, So the first broadcast was um, out of an estate up in Sandringham. It's not in Buckingham Palace and was actually written by Rudyard Kipling, of all people. Fascinating. Right. It was broadcast (laughs) to all of the colonies. So um, and this was a very big deal when it first happened. There was a South African newspaper at the time that praised it as, quote, a truly remarkable event and that posterity will look back upon it as a landmark of human progress. So it was like a technological feat as well as a historical one.
1: And I'm sure that's in line with what the monarchy wanted. They wanted, like it had to have some prestige for them.
0: Um, So the radio message, especially the Christmas Day speeches, uh, they had an unusual amount of intimacy because not only are you bringing the monarchy into your home, like playing out of your radio set, but also the language had to be much more accessible. And it became an incredibly important cultural event and part of the royal institution traditionally, um they skipped it in 1969 um because there was a documentary the royal family scheduled in the holidays and so they just they thought there was enough there was enough royal focus and they're like we don't need to do the speech this year and there was such an outcry over it that the queen had to release a message reassuring the public that it would be back the next year
1: oh (laughs) which is
0: very sweet. Um, were
1: people concerned that like there was something wrong with the royal family or were they just like we want the Christmas speech.
0: Mm, that's a very good question. I got the sense that it was the latter uh, of just yeah. like you know we want I understand the that. I like yeah traditions. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so you can you can see like how much of a role this changed within just one generation or two generations from King George the fifth basically seeing that saying that he was above it and then the public like demanding it. Finally, this movie takes place in 1939, so this is when Chamberlain addresses the country. Um, on the brink of war. And this is when George VI, Albert, addresses the nation. And yeah, like I said before, like the royals, a lot of their image is very theatrical. Um, It's very, it's based on like practice and traditions and like who gets to see what. Um, That dates back to like even Queen Victoria, who was the first queen to get out her message in print. That was a big deal at its time so like every monarch sort of has to go through this new with the new technological change this new like level of access to the public and how to deal with that and incorporate that into this mythos around the royalty and the radio is absolutely like a big step for that so I have so many press conferences today that i think it's easy to forget how like rare and special this was especially from yeah. a royal not just like a politician on the radio
1: So now we're going to talk a little bit about um, the characters in the film and the relationships. So one of the other important characters um, is uh, George's sixth wife, the queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth. She was known for being supportive of her husband and uh, was especially known to be able to calm him down when
0: uh, he had a temper. I notice a lot of um, biopics uh, tend to, well, a lot of them tend to focus on men. Yes, and uh, heterosexual men and yes. their women, girlfriends, significant others—they tend to just be the like supporting yeah. role that is nervous for her man, but also like just sort of supports him and, and lifts him up. And like technically, that's that's kind of what she is in this. But I, I don't know. She's like more of a presence, and I don't know how much just, how much I can attribute that to like the screenwriter or just Helen and Bottom Carter being very charismatic fantastic but yeah. she also like gets him lionel like she goes and does the searching my husband is um but well, he's required to speak publicly perhaps he should change jobs he can't indentured servitude something of that nature
1: yes then and it's not just like she's a passive observer of everything happening like she is present but in a very like important way uh another of the kind of major other characters is George's brother, who becomes King Edward VIII. And as is shown in the film, he had a very brief reign as King, and then he advocated to marry Wallace Simpson.
0: I'm going. I can't accept that. You're in no condition I'm afraid there's no other way. I must marry her.
1: And I think what was most interesting as I was doing this research was just that George VI was apparently very... He just wasn't in the know as to what was going on with the really. fact that Edward wanted to marry Wallace Simpson was, and like what it would mean for the monarchy. Mm. Um,
0: so I think that's somewhat reflected in the movie. Like, I feel yes. like, I mean, he talks about how they were close when they were little, but when he shows up in the movie, I, I don't get the, the sense they, that they're close at all.
1: They don't have a good relationship in the movie. No. Yeah, no, yeah. not at all. Um, and he drives
0: me insane.
1: Oh my gosh, he's so annoying. But
0: I think that's the point. That's the point. I've been dying to see it. I've been terribly busy. Doing what? Kinging?
1: Really? Yeah. I mean, he's also, like, not a good person. This doesn't really come up in the film as much. Edward and his wife visited Hitler.
0: Mm. Yes, like, that is a very big... In the
1: time frame of this film.
0: Wait, in the time frame? Like, it this... was in
1: 1937.
0: Oh, God. Yeah. So yeah. that's, like, two years I feel like there's teach. a
1: mention of, like, fascism and but it's like
0: he he, not, There's a scene when they're when he's like trying to get wine and like try, kind of like giving uh Bertie the brush off, and he keeps trying to tell him about all these things he has to worry about, and now he's going to be king soon and yeah. like, king now and so forth. You're being dreary. Yeah. Is king laying mm-hmm. off 18 staff and buying more pearls for Wallace while people are marching across Europe. Stop your worry. Hey Hitler will sort them out. And who'll sort out Hey Hitler? Where's the bloody twenty three?
1: Got, but that's like the only sense yeah, get it's like that a like... very
0: gentle i think part of this and this is gonna be me just like editorializing here but like yeah i think part of that might be that it's also a super touchy subject in the uk
1: yeah
0: to acknowledge that a royal at one point a king um was possibly sympathetic to hitler or at least yeah. like ran in similar circles is definitely super controversial. It's not something that is often talked about. And that's true. I think that was a way of like tapping it gently without actually acknowledging it in like a serious way.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. But there's still like a little bit more could have been done, especially since he was already kind of painted as the villain anyway. So I feel like they could have kind of gone into that a little bit more since it was kind of important to who he was and also to his like falling out with his brother. One last thing about Edward is that after abdication... And Edward and Wallace Simpson were, like, no longer considered to be part of the royal family. Mm. But the other thing I want to say is the abdication crisis was, um, has been d- described as traumatic for George VI, and I think you see that in the film. Yeah, not just because of having to speak to everyone in the world, um, when he's dealing with a stutter, but, um, also just because he felt unprepared for his responsibilities as king because... Growing up, he was the second son. He wasn't supposed to be king. Um, so the last um, additional character who is important in this film is uh, the king. Uh, Father King. George V. <laughs> <Smith. laughs> I I need to clarify Smith. that. Played by Michael Gambon, who I forgot was in um, this movie. What's important to say about him is that he had other children. <laughs> 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 um, he had other children.
0: <laughs> wow, did no. he,
1: though? Like okay. Also, wait. How he many did. other
0: children? Because there is no mention of them in this movie, and I did. not He at
1: least had a daughter. I. <laughs> 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 <Look this up. laughs> um. Literally, the whole film was like even when George the Sixth is talking about his like traumas growing up, he doesn't mention his other siblings. So yeah. Like,
0: yeah. Really. He talks about how it made him closer with his other brother because he was nicer to yeah. him. But I didn't get the. I didn't. Maybe there's an implication that nicer than other siblings, but, like, it was just, it was so not clear to me. I didn't realize.
1: Yeah. He had six children.
0: Six children?
1: Yeah. Um, Okay. I'm seeing if any of them died. One of them had died before. Okay. And one of them died very soon after the Second War started. The other thing that I wanted to bring up was that you kind of see this in the film with Prince Albert obviously being like he's clearly closer to his father in the film than his brother is even though his brother was going to be king in um his life even though he wasn't he was supposed to go into the navy um his father did assign him to take on domestic royal duties so he did have
0: some preparation Oh interesting so are you saying that like it, there's an implication that George V knew that his other son might have to step up.
1: Yes, that is something. But also, I'll talk about that more in a second mm. when I talk about King George VI. Okay, the king, the king in question, our of sweet this movie. Colin Firth, our sweet Colin Firth. So he was king of the United Kingdom from 1936, when his brother abdicated, uh, to 1952. As I said when I introduced this episode, from that speech he made closing the British Empire Exhibition in 1925. Um, his country knew that he had a stutter. So this is where the whole like important timeline things come up. Mm. So he actually started seeing Lionel Logue in 1926. And you'll notice this is ten years before his dad dies. Oh. Not like right before he's about to die or right before right. he's about to become king. Um this had been he had been working with Lionel Logue for Quite a period of time. Um, so as early as 1927, which was a year after he started working with Lionel Logue, he was already giving uh, speeches that one historian has uh, described as "quote great, quote unquote great successes."
0: Wow. Okay. So that might that I guess that also clues us into why they've truncated the timeline a bit, which is like obviously what all of these movies tend to do, just to make yeah to take all these key events that they want to do, but they don't want to cover like 40 years. Um, yeah. It also makes it more dramatic if it's like, if it's at the, yeah. He
1: needs to do this in a
0: month. Right, exactly. yeah <laughs> <laughs>
1: um But for his coronation, which was on May 12th, 1937, uh, the coronation was broadcast globally by the BBC. His coronation broadcast was so good, like his speaking in it was so clear um, that it kind of finally put to rest any rumors that in the period since people had last heard him speak, his setter had actually gotten worse and that he wouldn't be able to, like, do what he needs to do as king. And so I think that's really cool. And I think they kind of show that in the film. He's very worried about the coronation broadcast, but it's clearly successful. Yeah, that's On all true. accounts. Everyone, everyone, like, when they're re
0: it after, they're all, like, "This like they're all happy. Yeah. Um, so that's I think that's... Sweet. I love them gather around watching the projection because it feels almost like I they T-vote it, you know what I mean? And they're like, Yeah. We're, see on TV. We're missing Papa. The
1: main speech... That the film no, is named please. after, the King's Speech. Epo- ep- epony- eponymous. Epo- ep- ep- eponymous. Or eponymous. Biopic. I don't know. I, I should read all these words. I don't know how you say them. If we say it confidently um, enough, it'll be right. All right the eponymous. <laughs> <laughs> I think I need to pause after. The eponymous <laughs> speech. Um, the King's Speech that the film is titled after, in part. Obviously, it's a play on both yeah. him. His speaking issues and also the speech itself. Yeah. Um, is the broadcast declaring war on Germany on September third, nineteen thirty-nine? So that's King George the sixth. The sixth. Try not to (laughs) not to confuse my numerals. Um. So also getting better at reading
0: Roman numerals now that I have to like do it under pressure.
1: I'm like (laughs) VI. No, I really need to work on this. Yeah. Um, so the other, um, I feel like he's a protagonist in the film. I feel like yeah. their dual protagonist is, um, the speech therapist, Lionel Logue. And Logue was born on February 26th, 1880 in Adelaide, Australia. Um, he studied, and I love this word, elocution mm. in grade school. Uh, his teacher at that school actually got rid of most of his Australian accent, which I think is interesting. And I don't know if it was intentional, but. Right. I mean, it could be um, a mic-
0: like. It's kind of like how American broadcasters are like, quote unquote, taught a certain accent. Yeah, and it's like accentless. Right, exactly. It's like meant to be accentless of this weird, like (sighs) mid-Atlantic-y thing that isn't really how anyone speaks.
1: Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, So then in Perth, he taught elocution, public speaking and acting and also performed on stage, which we see his love of theater in this film.
0: Oh, and I had a call for an audition. One of my favorites, aren't they all? Could be a lot of fun. I'm sure you'll be splendid. In the amateur scene, they're a highly regarded group.
1: One of the more important parts of his biography um, in relation to this film is that, as he describes during World War I, he um, helped soldiers who had experienced shell shock and were now suffering with speech impediments to get back to their normal speaking patterns. And the way he did this was he taught them breathing exercises, and he has been described as being particularly effective because um, he had so much sympathy for his patients and because of his sense of humor. And I think we also see that in the film, like how he's so careful with dealing with Bertie. Yeah.
0: All our soldiers were returning to Australia from the front. A lot of them shell-shocked, unable to speak. I did muscle therapy, exercises, relaxation, but I knew I had to go deeper. My job was to give them faith in their own voice and let them know that a friend was listening. That must ring a few bells with you, Bertie.
1: He set up a practice in London in 1924, and he like didn't charge his poor patients anything because he just like had high enough fees for his rich patients that kind of like took care of it. Aww. And I think that's just great. So then in 1935, um, he helped found, found the British Society of Speech Therapists, and in 1944, he founded the College of Speech Therapists. So nice. he was a pretty big deal. And- yeah british speech therapy yeah for
0: sure um yeah also um shout out to his wife for also just like patiently putting up with a lot of the oh my god and you. that was
1: like jennifer eel l yes l- it's yeah um elizabeth from the yes, bbc thank you. Of yes. <laughs> i
0: got you, the, yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so the the scene where she meets the king it's like on so many levels because as a scene it's so good and really cute and then also my heart is exploding because it's like Elizabeth and Darcy all over again in the same room oh my god I didn't even realize that is that amazing (laughs) but I don't think you know King George VI it was very nice to meet you Will their Majesties be staying to
1: dinner? So yes.
0: the takeaway really from this from our our episode today is to go watch the BBC version of Pride and Prejudice to see the prequel <laughs> <to> <laughs> Peace. A, a couple of centuries, but still a prequel. It's all part of the same cinematic universe. The Colin first cinematic universe. <laughs> CSU. <CFCU. laughs>
1: I found a lot of really interesting things about how he um kind of treated the king on the on, um, the entry for Logue on the Austro- Australian Dictionary of National Biography. So I'm going to quote some of that now, mm. um, partially because some of them are, like, technical in a way that I couldn't rephrase. <laughs> um, but so, like, some of the exercises that um, Logue gave uh, Prince Albert King George to do um, were supposed to solve the, quote, poor coordination between larynx and diaphragm, which he had diagnosed, which Lok had diagnosed as causing the stutter. Um, And one of the exercises is actually shown in the film, and that's having the Duke say vowels really loudly out an open window um, for long periods of time.
0: Anyone who can shout vowels at an open window can learn to deliver a speech.
1: Um, I just kind of love that that was actually something that they did, and it wasn't just something created for the movie because it was funny or whatever. Uh, he also used tongue twisters, which we see in the film, too, to improve the King's speech.
0: I'm a thistle sifter. I have a sieve of sifted thistles and a sieve of unsifted thistles, because I'm a thistle sifter.
1: So, as is shown in the film, Logue also went through speeches with him to kind of figure out how he would say them. Um, And he was present at his coronation in 1937, which I like. Um, He was also present for the King's VE Day broadcast on May 8th, 1945. And my favorite thing that found in um his writings was that Vogue described working with the king as the greatest pleasure of his life Aww. so they really did have a very good relationship and i just i'm really happy that that was captured in the film
0: so i mean also going off what i was saying about how much i adore that montage of all of the different techniques um it's so entertaining to watch and then also just like coming from my linguistics minor and having to do a lot of stuff like that where like how many tongue twisters did you have to say? <laughs> um, we didn't have to do tongue twisters, but we had to do a lot of, like, vowel things. Like, we would have to do, when we were studying phonetics, sometimes the homework would involve literally just me standing and sitting in front of, like, a Blue Yeti microphone like this and just making noises for, like, an hour. And then I would submit that as my homework assignment. And he'd be like, this is how well you did.
1: <laughs> did you have to do, like, the weird Latin ones that, like, we just can't say? They're like, <laughs> I can't, so like aspiration, I can't, yeah.
0: like a, like I yeah, that's what it's called. Um, like unaspirated p's or whatever. Like so, it was just a lot of like really like quietly into a microphone for like an hour. Were, did you have
1: like a roommate that was like, "What are you doing?" Yes,
0: I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the way that linguistics is shown in the movie at this time, linguistics is like relatively very early stages. A lot of like speech therapy, for example, did come from. Um, like Lionel's past, came from like helping war vets uh, uh, through rehab. Early 20th century clinicians, they would, they gained credibility from like home disciplines outside of linguistics. So medicine, um, phonetic study, elocution, education. And then from there, they sort of moved into speech therapy. This is also a key thing because the fact that he's not, A like specifically professionally trained licensed speech therapist comes up in the movie Um, when they're preparing for the coronation. The Archbishop is scheming to basically get him out of there. I think in the movie they just play it up as just a classist and prejudiced um, motivated plot. It's like
1: you're not one of us, right? Exactly, you're
0: not one of us. He's the like the lower class Australian, and the Archbishop clearly just sort of wants him nowhere near this. Had I known that your majesty was seeking assistance, I should have made my own recommendation. Dr. Loeb will, will be attending the coronation. Well, well, of course, I'll speak to the dean, but it will be extremely difficult. I should like the doctor to be seated in the king's box. But members of your family will be seated there, sir. That is why it is suitable. Um, And so they dig up some dirt on him, which is basically that he doesn't have a license. And this is the cause of some tension in the scene, He has a fight with um, King George VI, uh, who feels like he's been lied to. No training, no diploma, no qualifications, just a great deal of nerve. Inquiries have been made. You have no idea who I have breathing down my neck. I vouch for you, and you have no credentials. But lots of success. Um, and I can see why they threw it in there because it is a dramatic moment and you do want to have this difference between the king and him and show the king overcoming the classism that he's been like raised with all his life to make a friend and extend this bridge. But in real life, there, there is no reason that his credibility would have been questioned just because like a lot of them were like doctors, uh, actors, even, you know, educators, they weren't licensed in the way that the movie makes it sound like he's supposed to be. In fact, in Logue's time, there was actually no way for practitioners to get an official credential. So like, I don't know what he's asking for, but he like, he, Lionel is completely qualified. Um, There were very few training programs in the early 20th century that offer background on specifically speech language, pathology, and therapy. There's not even many reference books, uh, let alone a license. There is some evidence that Logue may have been taking criticism from his peers at the time there was a telegraph article in 2002 about um queen elizabeth and it did mention this it said quote hmm. it was she who persuaded uh the king to take his speeches speech problems to Logue, a man without formal training considered a quack by many of his rivals but with an impressive gift for convincing his pa- uh, for convincing his patients that they could be cured
1: so i feel like that's all that matters i feel like it it's like a weird criticism to make when, like, your king can finally speak, give speeches without, like,
0: freezing up. Um, speech therapy has changed a lot over the years. Um, at least at this moment, it was mostly focused on speeches of muscular disorder, um, not necessarily from psychological damage or disorders. Logue's methods were generally pretty typical. So, like, we talked about with the tongue twisters and the saying, the vowels, those... We're all pretty, pretty common. Um, he used breath- breathing exercises, muscle relaxation techniques. He also did masking the feedback, like he does in the movie, where he mm. puts earphones over the king. Yeah, they're like headphones, so the king can't hear himself. Yeah, exactly. And then, so he can only hear the music playing out of it and just like, has him speak. I'm going to record your voice and then play it back to you on the same machine. Pop these on. You're playing music. I know. So how can I hear what I'm saying? I'm well, surely a prince's brain knows in its mouth, too. You? You're not well acquainted with all the princes, are you? That is actually a technique that they did work on. Hmm. Um, he also did have the king see, sing through blocks of text reciting familiar rhymes, also shown in the movie, um, when they're painting the, the models and he's saying the rhymes and also sharing and opening up about his, his past story that's also something that they did do in real life um loge did offer counseling and psychological support in a way that huh. not many of his peers would have he did encourage the king to talk about his traumas and fears um and did push him to oh one thing i did forget to mention the um the arm swinging and <sighs> <laughs> like when they're i think they're doing like rhymes while they're doing in it jail? Went up, whoa, whoa, they're went like up, Sally whoa. went down a well, and like they're swinging their <laughs> arms or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> we're swinging our arms right now. In case, oh yeah. What, By the so way, you, this can, is a this podcast, that there are no visuals. Da, Emily. Anyway, I'm swinging my arms. <laughs> <laughs> She's demonstrating. Yes. Um, and the in the movie, there's also just yelling and like just yelling like swear words and things like that. Those two things are kind of outdated. Like even at his time, oh. um, I think that they were just like really fun to watch is my only reason they were they were easily
1: to visualize yeah like, exactly and it's like of... it's
0: easy to just kind of stick that in a in like a montage I can't find anything relating to him rolling around on the floor <sighs> and I'm gonna just go ahead and say that that did not happen <laughs> you
1: mean Helena Bonham Carter didn't sit on him <laughs> I mean <laughs> Elizabeth, that was part of it right yes.
0: <laughs> and I did try to specifically look for that and it did you know.
1: I don't even know how I would search for that
0: <laughs> speech therapy rolling <laughs> It's fun to see that there's not there's not that much stretching that was taken for his methods. Like, oh. um, he's definitely I think presented as more unorthodox or shunned, um, and he may have been, but a lot of that would have been less from his like quack methods, so to speak, and more from the fact that he was just Australian. Predators, <laughs> pride and and pride.
1: So our last section, um, we're gonna talk a bit about. Um, The production of the film and how it was received. A couple of months before filming began, Lionel Logue's grandson, Mark Logue, found a collection of Logue's um, papers, which included his diary and letters between Logue and the king and queen, um, which is just one, like, a great find and also, like, impeccably timed. (laughs) So um, the director of the film, Tom Hooper, reviewed these documents and incorporated some of the details into the movie. Which I just think is so cool. Like, that's what you want to happen. Yeah, that's awesome. That's historian. really, like, you... the
0: dream of historical filmmaking, yeah. is you get, like, a treasure trove of stuff right
1: before yeah. you film. Yeah, um, that's, like, exactly relevant to what you're researching. Right? Um, Very cool. However, the letters, reading through bits of the letters, which have, um, sections of them have been published online in, like, articles and stuff. Um, the letters do reveal some inaccuracies in the film. Um, the biggest of which is that Loeb would probably have been more formal with the king than he's presented in the film so for one thing he wouldn't have cursed like all the time um, even if the king was doing it he wouldn't have <laughs> um, and he also probably wouldn't have called him Bertie especially if the king had been like don't call me Bertie mm.
0: Prince Albert, Frederick Arthur, George How about Bertie? Only my family used to say. Perfect In here it's better if we're equals.
1: Um, But he was much... They were more formal with each other. Even though they had a very good relationship, um, they would have been more formal. So overall, the film was super well-received and won a ton of awards, including four Oscars and seven BAFTAs. Um, But it was also hit with um, some criticism specifically related to the historical inaccuracies in it. Um, One of the big things was something we discussed briefly before, which was um, the like minimizing edward the uh support for hitler and appeasement that it like gets a mention but that's it and a lot of people felt that should have been a bigger part of the film or at least edward's character um also the character of churchill is just like weirdly inaccurate in a way that it didn't have to be and mm. that he's shown in the film kind of supporting Bertie throughout the like abdication crisis
0: have you thought what you will call yourself Hmm? What about George? George VI has a rather nice continuity to it, don't you think?
1: When in reality, he supported Edward through most of it. And I feel
0: like that would have added some tension. I can see that in the movie adding like this feeling that not only is the royal institution kind of against him at this point, but also the political... Leaders yeah. at this time might not be with him. Yeah,
1: so that was kind of a weird change that people brought up a lot in some of in like the reviews of the film. And the last thing was that the version of George that's shown in the film is completely against fascism and Hitler from the start, and that wasn't necessarily the case. Not that he was like visiting Hitler like his brother was. He also was king when Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain met with Hitler and gave Hitler the Sudetenland. And when Chamberlain came back, George VI brought him out onto the balcony of Buckingham Palace, um, which was both unheard of and possibly unconstitutional at the time. People have been very critical of that. Ooh. But, like, you from the film, and again, as I said earlier, I understand they wanted to make him this kind of like pure hero, but you kind of don't get a sense of the like kind of overarching conflict during this period, which was
0: appeasement and the development of World War II until the very end. Obviously, that's going to happen a lot with historical films about certain people is like erase their problems to make them clearer a hero. But, like, especially with stuff about the royal family.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's like, I mean, until the crown happened, I feel like there was kind of Well, even the crown didn't
1: really, especially the first season, didn't really mention the British Empire really in the first season (laughs) and all the issues with that. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I was actually thinking about the crown, though, because. Unlike um, this movie, The Crown does bring up Edward's problems with Hitler. Mm. Um, there's a whole episode, and I can't remember what it's called, but I remember that it, the name of the episode is in German. It's Vergangenheit. That's what it's called. It's called Vergangenheit because that means like the past. Um, and it's about like these records of the fact that like Edward was actually much more like complicit with Hitler. But um, I think a lot of people have observed this, especially with like British history and the British Empire. And there's actually a term for it. It's called the British Heritage Industry, which was coined by Robert Hewison. Um, And basically, it's this idea that, like, the version of British history that's presented in, like, the media and in films and even in, like, books is this very, like, pure image of this, like, great culture and, like, all these great people without fault. Um, And it kind of, like, removes any of the, like, unsavory aspects of or events or people of this past, so it's, like, completely palatable. So, there are issues, but I will say, I think the movie itself is very good. Yeah, And it did, like,
0: mean a lot to a lot of people. For what it's worth, I think it was, like, pretty accurate. Like, or at least in the ways that it dramatized it, it wasn't outside of the realm of, like, belief or... Exactly,
1: yeah. Well, one of the, like, accuracies that I was most surprised about was that did you go and listen to... King George VI. Oh. Re, like the that, speech. like speaking the de- Declaration of War speech. Yeah. Um, Colin Firth matches his speech pattern so closely. I was amazed. Yeah. I was like, it's cool that he, like, and impressive that he studied it so much that he was able to kind of imitate that almost exactly.
0: In this great power, perhaps the most, most faithful in our history. history. I send to every every household household of my my peoples, both at home and overseas, this message, message. spoken with the same same depth depth of feeling for each one one of you, as if I were able to cross your threshold and seek you myself. myself. For the second time in the lives of most of us, we are at war.
1: If you're having fun listening, please rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really
0: helps. You can also check out our website at realfictionpodcast.com, where we have a suggestion box if you have ideas for a future episode. And just for staying through our little plug, you get to hear what's up next. For next week's episode, the bad movie summary is an immigrant does pretty well for himself until he goes to Jersey.